With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I had to go about it, write it out, and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. This is the final word. Story time. Speed round. A, a new format for a show that you may otherwise be familiar with. We'll explain all of that in just a moment. My name is Jeff Lemon. Uh, joining me today is Adam Collins. That is not unusual. We are the two people who host this show most of the time. Uh, I'm in Melbourne. Adam is in London at the Oval. I can recognise the ceiling of the Oval <laughs> commentary box on your screen and you will be meeting up with some uh, listeners of the show later on today, UK time, which is uh, a very lovely thing to do after watching some cricket. Yet the final nerds, if they've dubbed themselves uh, who are sitting out I think they're sitting out In the Peter May stand So I'll go and find them uh, In the sun later today I've just watched Matthew Renshaw Nick off for 48 At Somerset Here today It's 95 for 2 Jamie Overton uh, Got that wicket With the first ball Of his uh, spell After lunch But I, I remember Jeff When we last recorded Storytime here It was when Middlesex were visiting probably last June and they took eight wickets while we were recording the podcast and I think Martin Anderson took four of them so <laughs> if we can have something similar to that uh, in that game by the way that Middlesex are playing at Cardiff today you'll enjoy Jeff that Shaheen Sharafridi took two wickets in two balls to get going including Marnus Labashain bowled him shouldering arms and, and knocked over Sam Northeast's first ball as well so a pretty good recruit there having <laughs> Shaheen rocking up in May uh, well it's still <laughs> April here but April May great conditions for bowling fast and doing what he does so yeah but a gorgeous day here in South London. I saw the footage of it. I was trying to work out how he actually bowled mm, him because mm. it looked like Manus lost leg stump. And I was trying. I was like, did that go through his legs? I think it might have. I might have reared up off thigh pad, back of bat, uh, onto the woodwork. But yeah, I mean, there, there are nine games going on at the moment. It's one of those kind of days. I should say, by the way, in this commentary box, I'm not quite sure which one I'm in. I'm in the one next to TMS. I think this is where Five Live and where TV are and kind of splitting this room uh, during a, a test match day. I've got, I've got Joe with me, who's one of our listeners, who's been sharing this space with me and while I've been working this morning. So everybody say hello to Joe. Hi, Joe. Hi, Joe. Uh, Diamond Joe Quimby. Uh, yeah, that's the, that's the commentary box with that weird little like cafeteria bit at the back. You expect there to be like a, a lady in there with an apron selling you red frogs or something. Yes. From, from that little window at the back. But look, we don't have much time to waste today, so we're going to okay. get down to it. Here's what we're going to do, right? The basis of this show is a game called Nerd Pledge, n n n Nerd Pledge, Nerd Pledge, all of that, all of those variations of Nerd Pledge. Um, it is a game. It is a reverse quiz. It's a, it's, it's a game where the listeners quiz us and people who listen to the show, they sign up on Patreon to support the show and instead of sending us a normal amount of currency, they send us a bespoke amount that relates to cricket in some way and we have to work out what that means, right? So then we try to solve these quizzes on the show 
And many of them, I will say this, many of them we get right, many of them we do not get right. Um, And so then we have to try to do it again. And normally we'll do a few of these each week, but we haven't been doing them for the last probably 10 weeks because we've been too busy with other things. And so they have backed up. Suffice to say, I think we have about 40 on our list and we need to chew through a lot of them. Uh, And so normally, you know, we we would meander, we'll take our time over stories. We're going to see how many stories we can crank out in about an hour and 20 minutes. That's sort of what we've allocated ourselves for the show today. And we're going to do as many as we can in that time while telling the stories, but trying to get through them in in a a faster way. So strap in, if you're in the car, you'll already have your seatbelt on, but just make sure that, you know, we we are going to pin you to the back of the chair for the next hour or so. Yeah, always wear your seatbelt on every single car journey. Uh, Okay, Jeff, uh, your first up, it's Paul Reeve with 512. The first time around with Paul, uh, Jeff, you had a bit of a frolic without going anywhere in particular. Uh, Paul, in response to that, said, on this statistic, he is best amongst current male players using any sensible minimum qualification. Let's say 10 matches played. All yours. Yes, yes, five, one, two. And and I did look at lots of different things last time and none of them were right. And eventually I realized, well, this isn't this isn't sort of a stat that you can look up, but it is a stat that exists if you decide to make it exist. Five point one two is the average number of wickets that Ravichandran Ashwin currently takes per test match played, which is the best among current male players with a sensible minimum qualification of, say, 10 matches played. So this this is pretty interesting stuff because... So I looked up the all-time uh, lists here and, and Ravachandran Ashwin is coming in 14th all-time. Predictably, they're mostly kind of 1800s geezers who are towards the top of that list or, or just out of the 1800s in the case of Sid Barnes, JJ Ferris, Tom Richardson, George Lohman, all these kind of cats. Murley comes in fifth. He took 6.02 uh, wickets per test match. Tara Turner is in there. Clary Grimmett's in there, of course. He is 5.84 wickets per test for Australia's greatest ever leg spinner. And there's Titch Freeman, another uh, leg spinner we love on this show, who took five and a half wickets per test match. Bill O'Reilly's in there. So basically, if you're a leg spinner, you're a chance to be in at the top. Bert Ironmonger's in there at number 11, which is lovely, Adam. Yeah, well, I like that Dainty was at number 11. And yeah, Titch Freeman, justice for Titch, in at number nine, mm. only played 12 test matches for 66 wickets, so 5.5 a match, but yeah, played his test cricket between 1924 and 1929 when selection was all over the shop. So yeah, hard to draw a through line there. Ashwin actually is up to 5.14. Now, if Paul were making this pledge now, it'd be mm. two more cents per episode, but uh, it swelled ever so slightly. <laughs> but um, yes, 442 wickets he is up to, and I think he's taken about... Oh, about 80 of those in the last 18 months because he was about 30 mm. behind Nathan Lyon and now he's like 30 ahead of Nathan Lyon. So, yeah, he's got to move on recently. Yeah, there's Syed Ajmal in there who's not a leg spinner, more of an elbow spinner, I suppose. Um, and Bobby Peel gets a run as well. He's in the top 20, which is great, along with Dennis Lilly and, and Richard Hadley. So they sort of round out your, your top 20 Spoffeth is in there as well. Yassir Shah is the only other current player in the top 20. He's going at 5.11, but can't get a game for Pakistan at the moment. So that is, I'm very confident, Paul Reeve, your number, which was 5.12, which was the average number of wickets per match for Ashman. Beautifully done. Next up, 4.07 is six again. We said 
407 happening twice in a test match for India against Pakistan in 2004. That's right. That was mm. one of mine. That was good. We've got a clue, though, Jeff, that, well, first of all, when I wasn't right, unfortunately. I'm glad we told the story, though. And run us through what Six Again thinks we should know before we answer it a second time. Yes, well, six again is a rugby league reference, although it could also be a cricket reference with a set of six that could be an over. Six again says, I signed up shortly after you had discussed Billy Moore of Queenslander. Queenslander! The, the state of origin guy who came down the race yelling Queenslander to himself. And six again says, Billy Moore is vaguely linked to this pledge. 407 relates to a stacked first class match. Go on. Yes, that all helped, as did a further uh, bit of correspondence which pointed me towards the, the 1990s. And Billy Moore's home ground as a rugby league player was the North Sydney Oval. That was the club he played oh. for, the North Sydney Bears, So, which I didn't know but, but found out thanks to Six Again. And, yeah, there have only been four first-class games played at North Sydney Oval, which surprised me a little bit, Jeff. I, I kind of remember North Sydney being such a big part of the cricket we watched in the Mercantile Mutual Cup in the 90s and thought they might have played more there uh, for the Red Bull team. But, yeah, only four times and... One of those was in 1997-98, and I remembered it um, because it was the early days of Optus Vision, and I, and I reckon, you know, I can kind of, in my mind's eye, see the highlights of this game on a Rob Alinda page or, or something like that, and being early season in October, so much of the focus was on the game between New South Wales and Victoria, just after they'd returned home from the 97 Ashes, where most of the team were from New South Wales and Victoria. And the Vicks batted first and made 509, Matthew Elliott backing up his Ashes series by making 187 to start his season against an attack of McGrath, Stewart, McGill, Mo Matthews. I didn't know you were still playing in 97, but there you go. Uh, Michael Bevan, Shane Lee and Mark War. So a stacked attack. 160 for Laurie Harper in his, uh, in his brilliant summer. His one brilliant summer for Victoria. And he fell away pretty quickly after that. But I'm pretty sure what uh, Six Again is referring to is the 407 for four declared uh, that New South Wales made in reply. Uh, because Steve Waugh made a double ton, an unbeaten 202, uh, batting at number three. It was a cracking match, though. I mean, Michael Slater out to Paul Rifle, who had a great 97 Ashes himself uh, in the first over of the reply. Mark Taylor bowled by David Saker when he was at his quickest. And yes, Mark Waugh in the runs. Likewise, Shane Lee. They declared behind. And Victoria played along to a point. Uh, they declared their innings closed the second time around at, at 279 for eight with Ian Harvey having enough time to post three figures. But they only left New South Wales 63 overs to chase about 380 before they shook hands. But yeah, that was enough time for Michael Slater to get 85 to remind selectors of who he was after missing out on that Ashes series in 97. And more runs for Tugger, more runs for Tubby. They were the great days of the Sheffield Shield. And yeah, I reckon we should bring it back to North Sydney Jeff there was only one more game there and that was in 2017-18 and of course we've seen it used for the women's big bash league and and women's international cricket but not for Sheffield Shield cricket and surely it's better than Blacktown or Bankstown or whatever town they're playing it in play it at the NSO (laughs) plenty of runs at the NSO Uh, that might come up later Uh, a little bit of foreshadowing now here's one that I am very happy to have solved this was from Ramaswamy it was $20.15, and he wrote us this poem, and, and we, couldn't, we couldn't solve it. We tried all sorts of things. The poem read as follows. He could have been a one-test nobody who debuted in a historic defeat. His exit in triumph was sure to follow on, but in a losing cause, no mean feat. He played in the true spirit of the game, applauding opponents others slighted. He remains one of my unlikely favourites, and a shot at coaching has me delighted. Well, <laughs> let me tell you, I have pinned this bugger down at last. (laughs) 
no surprise uh, when you when you hear the name, I suppose, Christopher John Llewellyn Rogers, who debuted in Perth in 2008 and could indeed have been a one-test nobody because he got one shot, Eminem style, filling in for Matthew Hayden, whose hamstring had gone. He made four and 15 as the Indian quicks, especially RP Singh and Irfan Patan, ran through Australia twice. Australia lost the game. It was a historic defeat because it was the only time India's ever won in Perth and because it was the second time that an Indian team ended an Australian record winning streak in test matches of 16. So obviously the first time was 2001 in Kolkata. This was the second time that happened. So that all tallies up. Could have been a one test. Nobody debuted in a historic defeat. His exit in triumph was sure to follow on. Yeah. But in a losing cause, no mean feat. How does that work? Because... They won in his last match in 2015 at the Oval after making England follow on. But it was also a losing cause because they lost the series. So Australia sort of celebrated winning the test but lost the series. England celebrated winning the series even though they'd been flogged in the test. It was a weird day, the Mm, last day of that fifth test match. The third bit of the poem, that was a pretty ill-tempered era for Australia and Rogers was noted as a player who always applauded opponents when they reached milestones, which a lot of his teammates at the time didn't do, and he stood out for doing that. And the fourth part is that he is well ensconced now as a Victorian coach and looking set to go to higher honours as his career goes on. How does it all relate to the number 20.15? And 15 is the number of runs that Chris Rogers made in Test cricket, and it is also the year of his retirement. So people like to talk about the Alex Stewart birthday being the same as his runs tally. I wonder how many players made as many runs as the year of the end of their career, (laughs) because that's what Chris Rogers did with 2015. Nicely done. Thank you, Ramaswamy, who's a a great supporter of what we do here on The Final Word. Uh, Matt Near the Gabba is as well a a prolific contributor to our Discord channel. Uh, His number... Uh, Jeff is 219. Uh, you went long on Frank Ward, but we were mm-hmm. not correct. Yes, uh, Matt says 219 is not Frank fucking Ward, as his middle name has become. He says, I think it's important that we take the opportunity to, uh, to remember his efforts and consider how much greater Clary's career could have been. My story of 219 is not so much about this player but about Clary Grimmett's record being snatched away and what a great injustice I felt it was at the time. Go on, Adam. Yeah, so this is, uh, well, with that clue, it's easy to know. It's about Yasir Shah, who who was the 219th uh men's test player for Pakistan who beat Clary Grimmett's record uh, to 200 wickets. He got there. He actually smashed the record. He, he got there in his 33rd test uh, in 2014 against New Zealand and, and Clary's record was in 36 and then it was Ashwin in 37, Lily in 38, the men who held the record beforehand. Yeah, the full list again is quite interesting though. You, you look down at it and you see that Imran Khan and Kirtley Ambrose and Glenn McGrath are comparatively slow back at 45 test matches. I would have thought they were, were closer up, but they were sort of not slow and steady. They're still in the top 20, but, but fairly consistent the whole way mm. through. And then kind of like with his one-day international numbers, we went big on Joel Garner and his one-day career a, a few months ago, I reckon, now, Jeff. Well, you look here, Joel Garner took just 44 test matches to reach 200 wickets. And, yeah, I think sometimes owing to the fact that he played in the same team as you know, Malcolm Marshall and Michael Holding and Andy Roberts and all the rest, we, we kind of forget that Joel Garner's numbers are, are better than all of them. And, you know, he his test average at, at better than 21 and a one-day average of 18 or, or something like that. And last but not least, I'll mention Ian Botham, who got there in 30 
nine test matches, make that 41 test matches. And yeah, this is something that Mike Selvey often reminds us when, when thinking about Ian Botham, that before he was the great all-rounder that he became, he was an extraordinarily fast and potent quick, and, and he yeah, got to 200 wickets within, well, within four years of his test debut in, in 41 tests. So, yeah, he had had serious game. And, yeah, that's all before the, the miracle of, well, it's around the same time, I suppose, of, as the miracle of Headingley and, and what he went on to do with the bat as well. That is the 2-19. Um, yeah, Stuart McGill's high up on that list as well. He yep. charged through uh, his wickets very quickly too. So the leg spinners union, they do it. Uh, next up. We've got Rob O'Neill, otherwise known as 24601. His number was $4.17. Uh, Daniel Norcross had a, 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 a Daniel attempt at this, which meant that it was not likely to be the correct answer, but it was, a, <laughs> it was an interesting answer, which Rob enjoyed. Yeah, he did. He said it was nice to have Daniel do one of his nerd pledges. Amazingly, it was not about Brian Bollis, which is where uh, Daniel went last time around, nor was it uh, Australia's 417 in Antigua uh, in 2003, the, the highest chase of all time, successful chase of all time. A more helpful clue now. A spicy cricketer by name and nature who might be considered the anti-Frank Ward. The Joe Angel reference is irrelevant other than some banter with Adam about an Australia helmet I have in my garage. And I went on to tell Rob via the Discord channel that that helmet will always be close to my heart. We auctioned it off as part of the Greatest Season It Was podcast once it came into our possession for bushfire relief uh, back in early 2020. But my main recollection of that helmet is that when Rach went into labour, or should I say when her water burst, she woke up at, I think at about 11 o'clock in the evening, hadn't been in bed for long, and told me that I think it's happening. And I looked at my phone and there were a bunch of photographs on there from Bretto and from Shannon Gill. And they were photographs of Jared Waitley, who was wearing the helmet, the Joe Angel helmet, the Australia <laughs> A helmet from 94, 95, when they went into the studio um, to be interviewed by Jared about the Australia A series. So I've got Rates telling me that she's in labour and I'm looking at photos of Jared Waitley wearing Joe Angel's Australia A helmet. So yes, uh, that, that, that's an important turning point in my life somewhat. <laughs> Uh, yes, yes. The, the the helmet is a marker of, of many things, I suppose. So a spicy cricketer by name and by nature. Well, this, Adam, could be none other than Cess Pepper. Cecil Pepper, who was a leg spinner and a clouter. He was a bit of a Warwick Armstrong okay. style, you know, big lad, gave the ball a rip, gave the ball a tonk um, <laughs> and, and did it all with a lot of competitiveness. From Marrickville, born during World War One, signed up to serve in World War Two. So it's a fascinating career for Cess Pepper. He played 16 times for New South Wales from 1938 up until February 1941. And then, you know, the, the Asian theatre of the war opens up later in 1941. He joins the AIF. Uh, service number NX67147. He's into the Royal Australian Engineers Regiment, ends up as a sergeant. And in December 1945, he's playing for the Services 11 against South Australia. And he's renowned as a player with a very hot temper. You know, he, he gets irritated very easily and he, he's at odds with umpires a lot of the time. Bradman often had trouble with leg spinners. He was playing for South Australia at the time. And Cess Pepper as far as he's concerned, nails him plumb, dead in front, not just once, not just twice, but three balls in a row. And uh, <laughs> and umpire Jack Scott says, no, it's Bradman. Ah. So he goes, no, no, not out, not out, not out. You know, on the probably got a stride in or whatever it was, whatever reason they had for not giving wickets to spinners in those days. Couldn't get an LB as a spinner. And after the third one, and Bradman goes on and makes 100 after this, obviously, but after the third 
appeal is turned down, Cess Pepper loses it and he just turns to the umpire and tears strips off him and tells him, talks about his parentage and his eyesight and his integrity and everything else. Um, and basically after that match he realises that uh, the Australian Cricket Board, as it was then, or the, the, you know, however the administration worked. Basically, if you get stuck into the umpire giving Bradman not out, then you're getting stuck into Bradman, and it's 1945, and you can't do that. Mm. And he realises his career's going nowhere in Australia from that point. This is why he's the anti-Frank Ward, because Frank Ward was a leg spinner who enjoyed Bradman's favour, and uh, Cess Pepper was a, a one of the many leg spinners who fell out of, of, of Bradman's favour. So he pisses off to England, he goes and joins the Lancashire league he ends up on 50 quid a match at Burnley which is I mean you'd take that now wouldn't you 50, 50 quid a game that's going on if they, if they paid me 50 <laughs> quid to play at Jimmy Anderson's club each week I've been to Burnley Cricket Club it's where the away fans go when when you're going to watch Burnley play uh, football when you're the away support they pop you into Burnley Cricket Club next door as the kind of away pub to congregate all the fans and yeah that, that's a beautiful place to watch cricket so I, I would take it now happily so, okay, so he, he goes to Burnley and playing for that club for the next number of years, he ends up with 4,000-plus runs at an average of 42 and takes 515 wickets at 11 <laughs> for Burnley, dominates the, the Lancashire leagues. Uh, he's famous for scoring once scoring 38 runs off and over. It was an eight-ball over, but nonetheless, 38 off and over, no slouch. Stayed in the region, died in Manchester in 1993. So he never played a test match, but he did play in the victory tests in 1945 for the AIF team, uh, teaming up with Keith Miller to great effect. They batted together well on a number of occasions. The series ends up 2-all with one draw. In the first match, Australia, the AIF team, win the first uh, match of that series and Cess Pepper wins it by hitting a six into the top tier of the pavilion at Lords to raise a half century for himself and win the match for the AIF team. He is second in the wickets tally for Australia in that series with 20 wickets and he's second on the run scoring list with 417 runs. The number from Rob O'Neill was 417. So one of two cricketers who were leg breakers who were influential in the victory test but never to play a test match. So Bob Christofani being the other one who, who bowled England out I think I'm right in saying Christofani bowled out England to win a test match or the, the you know, whatever they were called, the victory test match, unofficial test match, at exactly the same time that Churchill was visiting the Queen to dissolve Parliament to call the election in 1945, which Clem Attlee went on to win. I, I worked out that it must have been with about half an hour of each other. Um, it was in this book I was reading about Attlee and I sort of worked out by the scorecard when it must have happened because that's why I'm such a cool kid. I'd also add that um, I wish you, the, the pledge had have related to his service number, Rob. Given Rob's history with five-digit pledges, he could have easily gone with 67147. <laughs> And tested Jeff that way. And last but not least, when you said at one point in your answer there, Armstrong style, I just couldn't get out of my head. From 10 years ago, gangman style, uh, Warwick Armstrong style. Maybe it could be the, could be the song reprised in 2022. A 10-year tribute by side to Armstrong the big style. <laughs> All right. That's it, Rob O'Neill. Uh, I'm glad we got to talk about Joe Angel's lid again as well. 4.17. Next up, this is me. 158 was from Ruto. Loves to Ruto. We said Ireland's lowest one-day international match total 
across both innings. I'm not quite sure how that works, but believe me, we must have done so. Jeff, what's the new clue? Well, well if you combine both innings of both teams in the oh, match, I see. up to I 158, see. that's how it worked. Um, yes, Ruto says, uh, it, well, initially Ruto had said that his clue related to a European city that was in the title of one of our recent episodes, and we went to several places, Dublin right. and, and Philadelphia and all kinds of stuff. Well, he didn't say European city. He, he now says, I apologise for sending you to the wrong European city, uh, the episode I meant was number 69. It's named for my city, just pronounce it better. Now, obviously, the, our title for episode 69 was simply nice. nice. And if you pronounce that differently, it is nice. nice. <laughs> Go on then. Yeah, well, I'm still a little bit stumped by this. I mean, I'm certain I've got the answer right and I'm about to tell the right story, but it becomes pretty clear that he's talking about the Olympic final from uh, 1900 between, let's call them, Team GB and France. And that's a story worth telling. However... The ground was the Olympic Stadium in Paris. It wasn't in Nice. It was the, the velodrome, which they mm. used for a number of sports. Across that six-month stretch, Jeff, as a listener to the dollop, I'm sure you've heard about the 1904 Olympics in St. Louis, which – or St. Louis? St. Louis? St. Louis? I've never really St. known. St. Louis. St. Louis. I, I think uh, where in, they, in American uh, style. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where they uh, had all sorts of weird and wonderful and horrible, downright disgraceful activities involved. Well, that ran across about six months to coincide with the World's Fair. So it was in Paris in 1900 as well. So they were able to run lots of different sports in the Olympic Stadium. And one of those was this odd cricket game. So... A few things to note here. One is that cricket was going to be in the Olympics in 1896, but they didn't get enough interest. There weren't enough entries to justify it. But in 1900, <laughs> they did it on the basis that the Dutch had put in a nomination to play, as had the English or the British, as had the French, and as had one other, which I clearly haven't written down. There were four competing countries, two of which pulled out, which left just a gold medalist and a silver medalist, effectively, GB against France. However, the French team was just a touring team called the French Athletic Club Union of expat Brits. And representing Team GB was Devon and Somerset Wanderers, who were – it was Netherlands and Belgium, sorry, who pulled out. I did, I did write it down. And they were playing in a two-day game starting on 19th of August. And, yes, it was in that Olympic six-month window. And uh, Beechcroft's team, who were a side who'd been uh, touring and playing in various places since 1894, they were the Devon and Somerset Wanderers, batted first. And they had 12 players on the scorecard. The, the official scorecard, as is the usual convention – has 11 spaces, but the, the captains just formed a view that maybe we should let all of our players play, given it's an Olympic final after all, and they turned it into a 12-a-side game then and there, so there's a handwritten mark on the official scorecard um, rather than the printed 11, as you do. Uh, anyway, so Team GB, as we'll call them, were all out for 117, four to Frenchman William Anderson. The French in reply made 78, with Friedrich Christian taking seven for 28 for the Brits who were after quick runs the second time around, and Alf Bowman made 59 not out. Uh, and the French chasing 185. They surrendered, and dare I say it, for 26. Montague Toller took seven for nine. Now, he was a man who did play some first-class cricket for Somerset in that part of the world. He played six first-class games, but he was the destroyer in the gold medal match, taking seven for nine. But they only got the final wicket. I didn't know this bit. I knew that, I knew it was a crazy end and so the 26 all out, but they got it with five minutes to spare. Otherwise, the French would have held on for a draw. Now, I wonder what they would have done then, given out um, two medals. I'm, I'm not quite sure. As it happened, they didn't issue a gold medal then on the day. Instead, they gave out a bronze and a silver. But history has recorded it as gold and silver 
And why 158? Because uh, that's the margin for Ruto, Mad Ruto. 158 runs, uh, GB, one by. And yeah, they were meant to go again in 1904, but as it was in 1896, there wasn't enough interest. And yeah, the lads from Devon, they kept touring around France for the rest of the summer, but they weren't welcomed back. They were, they were seen as too excitable. So after becoming Olympic champions, it sounds like they, they just got on the grog and had themselves a, <laughs> a, a sort of a, a two-month booze up uh, after getting the job done at the velodrome in Paris. So yes, I'm not quite sure where Nice comes into it, unless I've completely misunderstood the situation, but I'm certain we are talking about the one and only Olympic final in 1900. 158 runs the margin. Maybe it was just that Nice is French and so that was enough of a hint. Um, yeah, there's There's, there's got to be some sort of link there, but I like that it was essentially um, a kind of expat like it was like one of those yeah. random five-a-side teams of Brits that you find yes. in, in Malaysia or something where they're all working <laughs> in a financial services office and, and then they just happen to be playing, you know, basically the author's 11, like some, yes. some sort of random that's what it, well, that, That's what kind of what it amounts to, with the exception of that one first-class cricketer. I don't think anyone else ever performed as a professional. But yet 12 of them, mm. rather than 11, go down as Olympic champions. It's quite a staggering story, really. Yes. And uh, that'll be added to, hopefully, uh, in Los Angeles in, in 2028, if all goes to plan. Where they'll actually give out a gold medal instead of a silver and a bronze because yeah. there were only two competitors. <laughs> Maybe that's why they're like, you can't win gold if you only had to beat one other team. I don't right. know. Yeah. Cameron M is our next up with $3.44. Now, I felt very clever with this because initially he said, this pledge is closer to home, but the player and stat are not. And I said, well, George Headley made 344 in Jamaica in 1932 at the Melbourne Cricket Club ground in Jamaica, right? Yes. Brilliant. Brilliant answer. Incorrect. Cameron followed up to say, birds are your clue if you need another. One that never rests, one made of stone, and the best is regal and graceful while being devoid of colour. Right. And so initially I thought about nicknames. I thought like players whose names relate to birds like, like you know, Graham Swan or, or Robin Smith or whatever. And then I've realised there was something in my memory that said Cameron's a Western Australian, you know, and I know, I know they're a proud people. I know they're a proud and upright citizenry in WA. You know, they won't let you in. No, if they decide they're not letting you in, they're not letting you in, champion. Doesn't matter if you're the Australian cricket team, piss off. So, and I thought, what is a bird that is graceful and regal it's on the flag. They've got a black swan on the flag. Mm. Um, and so it took me a while to figure out. I'd, I'd actually never really figured out the devoid of colour thing until later on Cameron mentioned something about isospectrometry or a tree or whatever it is where something that reflects all of the light spectrums shows up as white and something that absorbs all light shows up as black. Therefore, you could you could say that it was devoid in a, in a scientific sense. Anyway, I was like, all right, we're starting with a black swan. So it's got something to do with WA. And if one of these birds is an emblem, the others have to be emblems. And I thought, where is a crossover with multi-emblem players? And a little bit of a Zimbabwean link to WA overall. Ah. And there's a bird on the Zimbabwean flag, isn't there? Yes, You, there you don't is. often remember that one, but there's this sort of big hook-beaked golden bird on that flag. So I started looking into that and it turns out it is not a bird on the flag, it's a statue of a bird on the flag, or it's a picture of a statue of a bird on the flag, because there's this iconography thing in Zimbabwe, where they carve these stone birds, and they're prevalent, they're all over the joint, I don't know if you've noticed any while you were there, but they're a big sort of cultural 
part of, um, of of iconography in that country. So, and they carve them out of soapstone, and so the bird on the flag is a stone bird, and that was another part of the clue. Okay, so who's got links to Zimbabwe and Western Australian cricket? Murray Goodwin does. Murray Goodwin not only set the record score for Sussex once by making 335, but he then went on and broke his own record by making 344, which is Cameron's number. Not out both times. I thought, what's on the flag for Sussex? What have they got for an emblem? Looks a bit like a bird to me. In fact, it looks like a whole flock of birds. And it turns out, looking into this, the bird that never rests, that was the clue. The crest of Sussex is a flock of martlets. And that is a mythological bird, doesn't exist, but it's got tufts of feathers instead of feet in mythology. And the mythology is that the bird is born in midair, hatches before it hits the ground, and immediately starts to fly. And that it flies for its entire life. It never lands, it dies on the wing, and thus it doesn't have feet because it never needs to land. And it's kind of been taken, it, it's used on a lot of coats of arms and heraldry and that sort of thing. And it's been taken to be a symbol for unstinting effort, you know, for, for constantly striving to be your best, which I really think it's more a symbol for people not appreciating the value of self-care um, <laughs> and taking adequate time to rest because those things are important. Nonetheless, it has hundreds of years of usage as a heraldic image and thus, we have the three birds that Cameron mentioned, and they all link back to Murray Goodwin's 344 for Sussex. What a get. So you've had two cracking answers there, the George Headley one initially, and now this. Uh, Cameron, you've been well serviced by Jeff there. Well played. What I'll say is if everybody sends through clues that complicated, we will never get through our list at all. So let that be a, a marker of sorts. But that is a brilliant way to, to finish off a, a number that has been on our list for a number of months, I'm pretty sure, Jeff. So thank you, Cameron M. Uh, next up is Michael Ball with 140. We told the story of Colin Blythe and Michael wrote back to say that he was grateful for sharing a tale of that particular dusty old bastard who he didn't know about. Unfortunately, it was far too highbrow for me. My pledge is still involved in the game, although no longer playing. A Lanx 90 stalwart, although they didn't play in the 1999 World Cup, my pledge can be found in their bowling and in their batting. So I, I sensed immediately that he was trying to, to get us off the scent of Ian Austin, who we spoke about a few weeks ago. So no concerns there. We know that Ian Austin, of course, played in the 1999 World Cup and was also a Lanx stalwart of that generation. Um, I quickly worked out, though, that we must be talking about uh, the great Glenn Chapel, one of the unluckiest players of that era across the board. On Storytime in the past, we've uh, reflected upon his 6 for 18 to win the 1996 NatWest Trophy Final as a, as a young fella. All up, he took 985 first-class wickets at a career that went until he was 42 years of age. Uh, he led them brilliantly uh, back in 2011 when they uh, won the county championship for the first time in their own right since World War II, I'm pretty sure it was. That was his seventh trophy for Lanks across his long career. But yeah, that meant the most to him. He was captain too and, and picked up the final wicket, which was a, a pretty special moment. One of 55 victims for him with the ball that year. Also, across his 24 years, he, he made nearly 9,000 first-class runs at 24. So, you know, a pretty like a better than a bowler who batted a bit. If you've made six first-class tons and 37 other scores above 50, I think that, you know, you need to consider their batting along side their bowling. Nearly 400 white ball wickets for Lanks as well but just one England call up and that's in 2006 a decade after when he should have been called up after the six for in the 96 NatWest Trophy Final that I mentioned before. You you speak to Lancashire fans about this and then like they picked him exactly a decade after they, they should have selected him. Anyway so 
when he does get his opportunity, it's against Ireland at Belfast in a, in a one-off one-day international. And he did his job at number eight. He made 14 of seven balls at the death, including a big six. But sadly, he only got through four overs uh, sharing the new ball with Steve Harmison and had none for 14 at that stage. But yeah, he broke down with a, with a stomach strain. And as a result of that, he missed the T20 that he was also uh, selected for. And, and that was that. So where I think we get to on 140 for Michael is that he said in his clue, the number can be found in both the bowling and the batting. Well, he made 14 and conceded 14 in his one one-day international. So I think that works for 140. Glenn Chappell, a, a fabulous contributor over such a long space of time but i reckon he's talking about his sole international appearance that is very well picked up with the 14 and the 14 honors even nothing to mm. be ashamed about there and i also loved that uh glenn chapel a guy who got dudded by selectors has been out there firing shots for matt parkinson oh, over yeah, the last uh, week or two as well <laughs> he's he, he has been absolutely uh not uh, not retiring in his thoughts we uh we, we kind of we kind of missed this on the uh on the weekly show didn't we that matt parkinson has gone viral like three times last week again knocking over international players and just can't get a sniff he might be one of these cricketers that doesn't play. It might just be that they've made their mind up on him. That is to say that he won't get a test match after all of this, which would be a, a crying shame mm. given how capable he is. But anyway, that's a matter for the no, weekly I'm show. Sure. I'm, sure, I'm sure in the Rob Key uh, kingdom, Matt Parkinson will play. I hope so. Uh, right. Graham Innes, uh, $4.31. I talked about the number of runs Inzamam al Haq made in 2005 against England. Uh, Graham said, thanks for the wander through Pakistan test history and your seamless drift across the border into Indian cricket. Wrong but enjoyable. Adam, I would like that on my headstone, <laughs> on, my, on my grave. Wrong but enjoyable. I want that to be... What sums up my entire life? What's that? Daniel's got on his Twitter biography something a teacher wrote in a school report. Uh, we'll never meet his potential, <laughs> but we'll always star at dinner parties or something like that. <laughs> he stepped in a minute ago. You might have seen him on the Zoom screen. Daniel stepped in and looked over my shoulder. He's about to broadcast an IPL game a couple of doors down, and he was um he was doing the Lawrence Booth Wisdom interview that that I did you know a few days ago, and I was briefing him up before he uh, went toe to toe with Lawrence. So he's having a a big day here at his spiritual home of the Oval. So Graham says my player comes from W. And has a far more famous nephew. I always liked him because Ian Chappell described his cricket as similar to mine, more grit and determination than talent. Adam, this can be none other than Robert Samuel Langer, who was born in Subiaco, um, described as a broad shouldered left hander who liked to give it a whack in the middle order came into the WA team in the mid 70s and, and sort of was a chance to make to test side but he was up against Kim Hughes in his own team and, and Hughes always managed to outdo him and and so Rob Langer uh, never really got that chance. He was considered a hard worker. He he only made five tonnes in 44 first class matches but he made a lot of 50s and he made them against good teams, good touring attacks and that kind of thing, touring Windies attacks and so on um, and, and ground out hard runs at times. So when Ian Chappell was writing in The Cricketer in 1977, he picked Langer in his his made-up squad for the magazine and said he's more of a grafting batsman than any of his rivals and that should definitely count in his favour given the current state of Australian batting, <laughs> which was very, very Ian Chaffle at the time considering he was still basically a player himself and would, would later come back um, after World Series cricket. Rob Langer also played World Series cricket uh, a little bit. He got a bunch of money and only had to play a few games and that was probably in his interests, I suppose. Um, so his first-class average in the end was 43.06. And if we round that up, that is Graham's number of 431. And the famous nephew was 
you might have guessed, another pugnacious left-hander named Justin. Little Alfie Langer. Little Alfie Langer. Okay. So, yes, his uncle liked to give it a bash. Warwick Armstrong style. Okay. Yep. Uh, where are we? Warwick Armstrong style. He's going to really catch on. Let it rip if you're on social media. Have some fun with it. I'm just um, wondering what the, what the dance would be. You know, the same. Like, you, you the, the, the same. Yeah, <laughs> the crossed arms pony sort of sort of dance, you know. Is there a dance that you can show that shows you like getting malaria in Sri Lanka and then needing to drink whiskey at lunchtime for the rest of your life to stop your hands shaking? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Let's find out via Brad Truter. Uh, he sent through 524. Initially, Jeff, you spoke about Tony Gregg in Calcutta with his off breaks. In fact, I did. I told that story when, yeah, you when did. Tony Gregg um, reverted to off spin. Brad responded by saying, it's a one-day international bowler. Uh, the bowler also top scored with the bat for the winning team. Uh, uh, yes, right. Okay, I'll do this one. Uh, five for 24 has been taken <laughs> on seven occasions in men's one-day cricket. And as soon as I saw this list, well, first of all, I was hoping it might be um, Tim van der Gerten, uh, But um, when he took his five for 24 against Canada back in uh, 2013, they were only chasing 70, so he wasn't required with the bat. Then I looked at the top of the list and saw Mark War. I'm like, ah, that's right. I was there. Uh, so back to 1992 as a little tacker. A big night for a little fella, it must be said. It was the year after the Malcolm Marshall game uh, that I've spoken of before, the food fight where, um, when we were sitting uh, on the second deck of the Southern Stand that the night it was opened when Dad got me out of school when I was in grade one. Well, he did exactly the same thing 12 months later, almost to the day, and whipped me out of school early, uh, drove down what was then known as the Southeastern Arterial up to the G, uh, and, we, uh, and we sat in the same part of the ground. He bought the expensive tickets on, on level two, and I guess it would have been a, a lovely uh, father-son bonding uh, afternoon or something like that. But I, yeah, I, I do remember um, Australia batting sluggishly across their 50 overs, making only 198 for eight. But that still felt big at the MCG. Like, it still felt defendable because it was the full boundaries mm. of the MCG, and you'd always provide a bit of an allowance for, for scores at the G uh, around that time on that basis. And Mark War top scored with 57 from just 70 balls, which in context was, was kind of rapid, especially when compared to the hometown hero, Dean Jones, who, who made 22 or 58, or even his brother, Steve War, 34 not out from 69 balls. So he clearly really went for it at the end. Nice. Um, yeah, look, looked after, the, as, as Warnie would say, really looked after the red ink there. Kirtley took three for 25 uh, from his 10, and Big Phil Simmons got a wicket early, uh, nicking off Mark Taylor. But I remember that was at peak... Phil Simmons celebration when he was um, dancing around with his arms in the air and that was a, a big thing in the summer of 92-93. In reply, Brian Lara, and remember this is a few weeks before his 277 which comes in the January of 93, he got thrown up to the top of the order. I remember this, it was like a bit of a thing, this prodigy, this, this young gun given the chance to open in the one day team before he'd really established himself as a as an international player. Well, he looked at goods this night and, and batted through the innings, most of the innings, but he did lose his opening partner, Desmond Haynes, early on. And it's that brilliant juggling catch of Mark Taylor off Mike Whitney, which at the time I remember my dad saying to me, that is the best catch you'll ever see. And it holds up. It's um, a fabulous piece of work there uh, by Tubby. And the Windies are absolutely cruising. They're at one stage, 158 for two with loads of time on their side. Enter Mark War. He, he goes through Lara, bowls him for 74. 
nicks off Richie Richardson for 61 in the next over. So the two established men are gone. Then he rushes through the bottom order. Keith Arthurton, a brilliant caught and bowled off Junior Murray. And then the last wicket to go, Anderson Cummins, bowled from the final ball when the Windies needed a six to win the game. Australia win by four runs. Mark Waugh, the hero, taking five for 24 from just six overs at the death. And guess where I was for that Mark Waugh spell, Jeff? Guess where I was? I was back on the back on the southeastern arterial because Dad said, "Back to school tomorrow. We'll beat the traffic. We'll beat the traffic. The Windies are home here." So I remember listening to the radio as Mark War went through the West Indies. I saw none of it. Oh, Daryl! Didn't Darryl. see a ball of it. You didn't even see the Lara wicket. Didn't even see the. I've got a feeling. Uh, I've got a feeling the Lara wicket might have been just. If I close my eyes and think about it, I reckon he knocked Lara over. As you know, in the Great Southern Stand, when you're walking down the spiral, not not the stairs, but mm. the ramps. I reckon we yep. were walking down the ramps, and there was a loud cheer, and that was Mark Wall knocking over Lara. But still, it was like, oh, they need. 40 runs in 12 overs with seven wickets in hand. This is game over. A, 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 yeah. a fair calculation, but yes, it did fit into the slipstream of a number of events that we left early to beat the traffic in my childhood. Oh, Daryl. Daryl, there's a reason. <laughs> there's a reason that you stay to the end. There's a reason that you play the games all the way to the end instead of just calling them off. He does do that now, oh, by the way, my dad. He's now yeah. gone the other way. He, he's a genuine stay-to-the-end merchant. Um, regardless mm. of how bad Hawthorne are getting pumped, which is you know not so much a factor anymore as you may have as you may have seen on Monday, Jeff. But yeah, he'll always stay no matter how how bad the result. Whereas I'm more inclined to go oh last quarter, not so much beat the traffic, but get into the pub before everyone else does. Not that I see much footy these days, but <laughs> anyway, that's five twenty four. Yeah. yeah, those Easter Monday games will be the death of me um, eventually. <laughs> uh, you know, I used to make my. You know, if we ever went to the movies, I used to make my parents sit there and w- wait until the entire credits were over. I just, you know, just in case, sense of, just in case there was something yeah. in the credits that you were missing. I was, it was just like a sense of completion. I don't know. I like to count how many stunt people were used, or like see what the song titles were, or something. It's a weird kid. Uh, who the, who the best boy was as well in the credits? You always look out for yeah. that. Uh, thank you to Brad Trutter or. Brad Trutter, I'm not sure what the pronunciation is there, but for giving me the chance to do a bit of therapy there. Next up, Jeff, is 464. Adam Tunney, I went to Shane Warne's 4 for 64 at Lords in 2005 as a, an entry point to his Ashes campaign uh, that year over here, just after he passed away a few weeks ago. Uh, Jeff, the next clue that came in saying that he loved the yarns about 464, but the clue that might help with the revisit, the gloves are off. Time for war. Well, you had a Mark War story, and now I will give you a Mark War story, Adam. <laughs> In fact, I'll give you a Steve War story as well. Okay. Uh, the day that the War Brothers made 464 oh, of course. together. Yes. Batting together for New South Wales at the Wacker, uh, resuming overnight after having put on 238 the day before, handy, and then going on to 464. In the end, Mark makes 229, Steve makes 216. They're both not out. Team declares uh, two runs after they've set a new Australian record partnership in all first-class cricket. So, you know, they go past the the test record, the 451 that Bradman uh, put on. They go past David Hooks and Wayne Phillips. That's WB Phillips, not WN Phillips. Important to uh, distinguish between your W Phillipses. And they they declare at that point because they've got the record, which stood for about 30 years until a couple of summers ago when uh, Will Pukowski and Marcus Harris made 484 together. In the War Brothers game, New South Wales made 601 
everyone who loves the follow-on will be pleased to know they enforced the follow-on New South Wales at 314, having bowled 98 overs. <laughs> Good luck. Um, oh, what a surprise. Couldn't go through them a second time because everyone was buggered. <laughs> so WA batted through 118 overs. Now, Tim Zora made an unbeaten century. Ah. And batting at number nine, Ken McClay made a ton himself. Um, and they, they managed to see out the draw and make sure that the big partnership didn't do much damage. Well, here's the other half of the clue then. Tim Zora's famous and explosive oh, autobiography. The gloves, the gloves are off. Beautiful. Yes, I just put that together now. I didn't even... Didn't even think Thank of that. You, yep, Adam. Time for war. Gloves are off. Thank you, Adam Tunney, uh, 464. 252, Jeff, uh, Danny Strickland. Uh, and somehow, Jeff, this is one of those where we have uh, uh, given a nice answer for the wrong number. Mm, yeah, so you look, I manually put numbers into a spreadsheet and sometimes, and then I take them out of a spreadsheet and put them in the show notes, and then sometimes they end up being the wrong number. So <laughs> Danny Strickland's uh, 252 that we answered should have been a 258 or the other way around. I hope it's, it's the other way around, otherwise we're in big trouble here. <laughs> okay, all right, all right. Well, look, it's one of them. Well, <laughs> If you've got it wrong again, and I'm about to give an answer on 252, we're in more trouble than the early settlers with Danny. Right, so Danny's original clue was something about the debuts and something about the fact that he lives in Headingley, but then clarified that this thing didn't happen in Headingley, so presumably it's Yorkshire-related. And then he followed up and said this, my ma'am was reading the book about my pledge's most famous moment in cricket history when she died. Not literally when she died, but she had it by her bedside, which he, he thinks is a nice thought that that was, that was the last book that she was reading. He says, another link to my ma'am is that her father died in the Second World War in Italy. Well, as soon as I saw that, we know who else died in the Second World War in Italy, Adam. Yeah, we do. We're going to be talking about Hedley Verity and not Darren Lehman. I thought originally it might be about Buff, given that he's the only Yorkshireman to make a 2-5-2, uh, and that was against Lancashire in a you know, big deal Roses game in, in 2001. But yeah, Hedley Verity died in, in Italy, the great Yorkshireman, aged 38 in 1943. So where I went with this initially was looking at the, you know, the great Verity match, which was the 1934 uh, Lord's Test match where he took 7 for 61, then 8 for 43, 14 of those 15 wickets on the final day. And I was trying to find links to 252. Um, the only one I could find was that Morris Leyland, who, who laid the foundation for that England victory with a century before the rain came for three days, uh, made his ton from 252 balls. But that's, that's, too, that's too obscure. And it's not going to be mm. his cap either. His cap's 262. So I, I kind of stepped back a bit and thought, if it's not the day when he took 14 wickets. There's also a reference there to the book that was written about that. There was a book written uh, about uh, the Verity match. It was also uh, about a number of other things that happened uh, in 1934, the summer of 1934. It was called Half Time, the Glorious Summer of 1934 by Robert Winder, and it refers to the Verity match, Fred Perry winning Wimbledon, and, and Henry Cotton winning the Open, all in the space of a couple of weeks of each other. I think that the, the, the Winder win uh, and the Verity match were on, on the same weekend. Anyway, moving on. The other great moment of Verity's career, other than the Verity match, is when he took the best first-class figures ever registered. So I thought I would go there. Now, Yorkshireman, left-arm orthodox spinner, his career begins just when Wilfred Rhodes is finishing. Of course, we know that Wilfred Rhodes played into his 50s and was still a test cricketer in 1930. He was effectively replaced by Verity uh, in the early 30s. And 
Verity had an extraordinary start to his career, which included a 10 for 36 against Warwickshire uh, in 1931 to become one of the Wisden Five Cricketers of the Year in 1932. And 1932, July 32 to be precise, is where I'm going to go for the next bit of the story, which I hope will take this full circle. So they're playing knots at Headingley and... Knotts make 232 in the first innings. Yorkshire declare behind at 163 for nine because it's turning into a bit of a sticky dog and they want to unleash Verity and right they are to do so because Verity goes on to take a hat trick out of the first five wickets, then takes seven for three in his last 15 balls to finish with 19.4 overs, 16 maidens, 10 for 10, the best first class figures of all time, 113 dots, five scoring shots, 10 wickets, as close as you can get to a perfect game. And after declaring behind in the first innings, uh, they went on to win the match uh, by 10 wickets, chasing down 138 comfortably. So how does that come back to 252, I hear you ask, Jeff? Well, that's because Verity, in his first two seasons after Wilfred Rhodes put the queue in the rack, took 252 wickets at 13, including those two tenfers. Now, yes, that's a bit obscure, but it's Verity. It comes back to his greatest day, and uh, that might be more in hope than expectation, but at least it's something for Danny Strickland, and <laughs> I hope we're somewhere near the pin, because I couldn't find anything else for Verity in 252 and, 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 the, and those two famous days of his career, one at Lords and one at Leeds. Well, Danny, we've, we've taken you dancing, uh, no matter whether that was the right answer or not, uh, look. You can let us know how we've gone. Rahul Venkat. Uh, now, this was another number we got wrong. There were two of these. Uh, we answered 258, and Adam, you talked about CB Fry's highest first-class score and his ridiculous life and his ability to jump backwards onto mantelpieces. Rahul says, enjoyed that take very much. However, my original number was 278, mm. not 258. So how we got both wrong, I don't know. And both the same number, by the way. We, we answered 258 for 252. And 257 for 258. Yes. So it's all around this 258. It's got sort of final word 213 energy yep. around it here. Something's got mangled. Something's got mangled. Uh, so Rahul says, uh, my pledge is about a once-in-a-generation talent sorely mismanaged by his cricket board. Well, I mean, you didn't even need to tell me that after I knew it was 278. I know what 278 means. You know what 278 means. Glenn Maxwell and the day, the wonderful, wonderful day when he made his highest first-class score, his 278. You said, Adam, there have only been four first-class matches at North Sydney Oval. Well, this was one of them. Uh, this was one of them. It was... Uh, look, it looked like a pretty good batting track, let's say that, but it was up against a bowling attack of Doug Bollinger, Trent Copeland, Steve O'Keefe, Sean Abbott and Moses Enriquez, yep. five Australian international players. Pretty pretty handy bowling uh, lineup. Now, it's also easy to misremember that as being an all-out attack innings. You know, you, you think about clouding the ball onto the hill at North Sydney Oval, but if you're thinking of that, you're thinking of Ash Gardner because Maxwell didn't really do that. He only hit four sixes in the innings. Two of them were perfect straight drives of Trent Copeland. One of them's like a square drive behind point off Copeland. I can't remember who the fourth one was off, but at least three were off Copeland and they were lovely shots. But did I go back and watch the full nine and a half minute highlights? Yes, I did. Of course I did. That innings is defined by the back foot cover drive punch that Maxwell plays again and again. Anytime there's width, anytime Bollinger comes around the wicket and hangs it out wide a little bit or angles across him, he plays that exquisitely, that shot in that innings, and just, just cl clips it away through the, through the covers again and again so crisply. This was the greatest bit of Maxwell mismanagement 
with the benefit of reflection. So he makes 100 at Ranchi, gets a start at Durham Shala, series over, doesn't do well in the two test matches in Bangladesh. And it's like, it's taken as a shit. He doesn't ride, he makes 20s and 30s. Yeah, yeah, but he doesn't sort of, he isn't influential in the series. And they mm. they make their mind up there. And then every, it was like the, no one had him picked for the first test of that, of that summer. No one was saying Glenn mm. Maxwell should be playing. And of course, as we know, Shaw Marsh effectively wins his spot. But then Shaw Marsh is injured the day before the test. I can't remember what happened, something at training. And they call Glenn Maxwell up as injury cover. So he, I think from memory, he flies to Brisbane on injury cover. They release him that evening. He returns to Sydney and starts that innings the next day or some version of events like that. The timeline might be off by a day or two, but roughly that. So he has the, I guess, the thrill of thinking, Christ, maybe I'm making my home debut here against England in an Ashes Test match and then the, the how deflating it would have been for him leaving the Test squad and, and responded accordingly with that 278 and yeah I think looking back now with four or five years hindsight that's when they should have backed him should have been mm. around 2017 a Test match century a couple of games before giving him that home summer I know it worked out well with Sean Marsh no concerns there but that was the moment in time and he's never really had a sniff thereafter he's never been in a Test squad since mm. uh, Connor Prendergast he's next up the uh, $3.41, it is not Craig Spearman for Gloucestershire versus Middlesex. No. Uh, Connor says the, the hint I'm going to give is uh, Clover emoji in the final of a tournament that is now unfortunately, most likely, RIP. Yeah, the Intercontinental Cup. And this was a five-day final at Dubai in 2013. At least it was scheduled to be a five-day final, which, you know, you don't see many of those in, in first-class cricket other than test matches. It was a, a comp that began in 2004 and ran until 2017, seven editions in total. And they were a really big deal for that golden generation of Irish cricketers and Afghanistan cricketers before they became uh, test players in, in 2018. Like, this was the the big-time Red Bull stuff they would get a chance to play every couple of years. And I think it helped dramatically in making their case for test status because these games were humdingers and, and Ireland became quite a force. They, they won it in, in four of the seven times it was held. And this is surely what Connor's referring to, the final uh, back in uh, 2013. Now, in the first innings on day one, they were all out for 187, so it doesn't start well. Dramas. Uh, Dala Zadran, that, that beautiful... Um, side-on bowling action picked up four wickets for Afghanistan but they um, they neutralised that they negated that by bowling out Afghanistan for 182 halfway through the second day with uh, um, the captain Nabi top scoring with 42 but John Mooney uh, one of our faves back in the day Jeff taking um, five for 45 the second time around Ireland are able to set it up with the bat making 341 Connor's number uh, with uh, Nobby Niall O'Brien making 87 Ed Joyce 78 and Kevin O'Brien 47 so that old firm at the peak of their powers and Nabi in the wickets for Afghanistan as well as the runs they're set 347 and despite uh, Ramat Shah making 86 not out they're all out for 224 Ireland win by 122 Mooney takes another five wickets to finish with match figures of 10 for 81 for the Dublin Patriot uh, and it's worth noting here as well that it was Trent Johnson's swan song the former captain who was so important to that team in bringing them through especially in the 2007 World Cup when he led them to victory at Sabina Park over Pakistan what a servant to Irish cricket he was and yeah that would be the group of players who would go on to have their farewell in a way was kind of the 2015 World Cup I know they went on to, to play a test together in 2018 at Malahide but they, yeah, they played their best cricket in 2015 at that World Cup a couple of years later 
better after the Intercontinental Cup final of 2013, which I'm sure is what Connor Prendergast is talking about with his 341. Thank you, Connor. I love to see a shamrock emoji. Love to see the teams in green enjoying themselves. Uh, we've got the 184 from Indy, not the electorate that Sophie Mirabella lost, uh, not one of David Warner's daughters, uh, a different Indy, who originally gave this clue, right, saying, as a local of Sydney and a romantic, I was hoping for an emulation by the English team of a valiant charge led by two champions of yesteryear, leading from the front, falling short yet not meekly yielding to a loss. Now, I talked about Sydney 1987 Mm. when Dino made 184 and England went for the chase, Mm -hmm. which I thought was a pretty good answer. Not so, says Indy, but he says, hello, Jeff, hello, Barat, and most thank goodnessly, hello, Adam, which I I like that portmanteau. Remember, he says, that in a different place, my pledge would be 841. And I thought, oh, oh, okay. So it's a score. It's a, it's, a, it's a one for 84 or an 84 for one, depending where you brought up. Here we are, the very next Ashes test in Sydney after the one I was talking about. 1991? 1991, yep. Australia make 518. Greg Matthews makes yep. his fourth test ton. The freakish bit here, after 24 test matches, he had 400s. You'd take that from a top order player these days. Oh, he, he, had, a, he had a wonderfully consistent record as a, as a test number five or number six. He, he uh, as my Dad once told me he, he had the the closest standard deviation for any cricketer to mm. make a certain amount of runs. That is, his average was 40, but the closest scatter to 40. And, yeah, um, mm. made four test tons. But, yeah, he was a very good cricketer, Greg Matthews. So no one else makes 100, but, uh, you know, Boone makes 97. Um, Australia make a big score. England hang in there. Atherton makes a very slow 105. We talked with him about that when we interviewed him a few months ago. So 105 at a strike rate of 30. Um, David Gower comes in and makes 120. 23 and faster time. Stewart makes 91. Yeah, overtook him. I think Atherton was on about 60-odd when when David Gower walks out and, and Gower beats him to 100, something like that. So Alex Stewart makes 91, and then the surprise comes with the score on 469. Graham Gooch declares they're 49 runs behind. Um, basically, he's been watching Greg Matthews turn the ball, and he thinks, well, we'd like to have a piece of that. You know, Jack Russell was still batting. They could have got more runs, but, but Gooch wants to have a go with his spinners, and so he gets them in quickly, and it Almost kind of sort of works. So they bowl out Australia for 205. Tufnell has a hat trick dropped. So he gets Alan Border and he gets Dean Jones' first ball. And then Steve Waugh gets dropped at Silly oh. Point. T- tough chance in close. But uh, I think it's Gower who isn't able to snare that one. So they get through most of the Australian batting. But Ian Healy was pushed up to number three as a night watchman after the openers got out. And he hangs around, makes 69, nice, um, and bats for quite a long period of time. And Carl Rackerman does a lot of blocking down the order yeah. and bats for an hour, hour or two. It's I the think. slowest. I think it's the, it's the lowest strike rate ever for that many balls. I think there might be only mm-hmm. one other innings slower than that, the Neil Wagner one, if I recall correctly. But Rackerman had the record for a long time. Right. So they take enough time out of the game, basically, that um, – that it's it's out of England's reach. But England need 255 in 28 overs. So they need to score nine and over at the end of a test match. Yeah. And they go, well, bugger it. Let's have a crack. So they demote Atherton. Gooch opens with Gower. Gooch makes 54 off 42. Gower's 36 off 38. The opening partnership's going at seven and over. And they're sort of in reach until Gooch gets out, caught on the fence. Momentum stalls. England have to settle for the draw. But 
the opening stand is while they have the hope of the win and at the point that it ends, the score is 1 for 84. Very good. Thank you, Indy. Or Indi, I would say, if we were talking about the uh, the electorate. I don't think it's called Indi anymore, is it? They've, they've changed the name of it since, but uh, yeah, it was for a long time the area that, that Sophie uh, Mirabella um, represented. Sophie Panopoulos, Mirabella. I think it, I can't remember which one the married name was and which one the, the original name was. Uh, Mark Badworth is the next person who's up uh, 553. We said uh, New Zealand made 5.53 after Hadley's Ninefer, uh, and Mark responded by saying, just heard my pledge read out. It's a while ago, uh, and I'm sure it was to do with a book I was reading about Robin Smith, the judge. Right, okay. So 5.53 and Robin Smith. Uh, just a reminder, by the way, that Mark Bagworth's the, the, the patron who drives past Brick Lane Brewery uh, twice a day on his commute. His previous uh, nerd pledge was 2.07, and I think somehow that related back to Brick Lane. But anyway, uh, g'day to Mark and g'day to our friends at Brick Lane. Uh, 5.53 uh, and Robin Smith, the judge, well, that's the, the tally of runs he made in the 1989 Ashes series at an average of 61 when... All else was lost for England. He really took it to Merv Hughes. The two of them were scrapping throughout and he made centuries at Old Trafford and then Trent Bridge, his first two test tons in his sixth and seventh match. So a pretty good start to his career. He was uh, popped in the Wisden Five in 1990 for that effort and yeah, he was far and away England's best contributor uh, through the course of that sorry series for them. They were his only centuries against Australia, but he still averaged 40 uh, in 15 test matches and made more than 1,000 runs, which you know, was pretty good going uh, in that era. Um, better still against the West Indies, uh, against whom he averaged 44 and, and made three famous hundreds when yeah, not many batters in the world were averaging 40-plus against the Windies in, in the late 80s and, and early 90s. Uh, 62 test matches all up for Smith, an average of 44, over 4,000 runs, nine centuries, dropped too soon, deserved more, but... Uh, yeah, per our chat um, with Rob Smythe in November 2019, Jeff, a long time ago now when uh, Rob finished that book about Robin. Yeah, fascinating man, fascinating figure. Um, 61 first-class tons in a career that, that started in South Africa in 1980 and finished at the club that he loved, Hampshire, in, in 2003. And these days, um, per the book, he's well on the men from, from the trouble that he had in his post-playing life. And yeah, cricket is better for it. A, a huge contributor, not only to uh, that 1989 Ashes series, but for many years uh, as an England and, and county player, uh, Robin Smith and 553 for Mark Bagworth. Very good. Uh, thank you, Mark. Uh, next up, we've got Clint, a man who's, who always, always reminds me of our friend Cameron Fink, who organises a social football match with one team called the Old Clints and one team called the Young Clints. <laughs> uh, Clint, <laughs> depending what you do with typography, it can um, come out differently. Uh, Clint's number was $1.56. We talked about somebody making 156 in boundaries. Uh, Clint sent this follow-up to say it r- relates to an innings. Uh, at the time, it was a record. It's since been beaten. It's not a direct measurement of runs, wickets or catches or anything that you can find by plugging 156 into a cricket stats database. Now, I sent Clint a message and I said, oh, it's a shame that this isn't about Shane Watson because when he made that incredible 185 against Bangladesh in the one day. He scored 150 runs even in boundaries, 15 fours, 15 sixes. And Clint basically just sent me back like the text equivalent of raising an eyebrow. I was (laughs) like, oh, that's interesting. And I was like, Shane Watson hit 15 sixes in the innings. Clint's number is 156. His number is 15 sixes. It is that innings. It is the 185 and it is the 15 sixes that was a record, I think, until Owen Morgan got on to Afghanistan in the 2019 World Cup. 
Easy. Low-hanging fruit. Thank you, Clint. At 283 as we get towards the end here before we're going to call a compulsory closure to our recording session is Claire, Danny, Daniel, uh, we, I, spoke about Mandy Mitchell in this, who might be the greatest DOB of all time. Uh, Claire wrote back and said, I-, I know you wanted to be lied to, uh, but I think it would be nice to have this player talked about on the show. Uh, this was the player fielding on the boundary in front of us during my first innings at Test Cricket. The whole experience was astonishing to me, from my mum suggesting that she and I go along to pay on the gate, to being able to walk out onto the grass afterwards and stand in front of the Lord's Pavilion. This player suffered a horrible injury during the following winter tour, and that was the end of his career for England, which, of course, must mean that uh, Claire's referring to David Sid Lawrence, and quite timely as well, given that just last week he was made the the new president of the Gloucestershire County Cricket Club. And yes, there's a a, a reference to Sid in the editor's notes of the Almanac, which I referred to when uh, speaking to Lawrence a couple of days ago about the apology the club issued to him as soon as the the, uh, the allegations of racism were made public last year uh, through I think that was in, in Mark Butcher's documentary. Claire's referring to the two for 83 uh, that Lawrence took uh, against Sri Lanka at Lords in, in 1991. That was his third test of the summer and fresh off the back of a five-wicket haul at the Oval against the West Indies. Now, remember, that was a huge test match for England. They square a series against the Windies, which was pretty much unheard of. I mean, I mentioned before about Robin Smith making runs against the Windies. You know, taking anything from a series against them, bearing in mind that they won 5-0 here uh, in in 84 and had thrashed England so many times in, in the previous decade. Well, you know, the fact that they were able to square that series at the Oval meant an awful lot. And that was where um, Sid Lawrence took five wickets in, in the final innings of that match. And, and how did he do it? With raw pace. And it was shaping up. Uh, as Claire refers to here, as a, a big winter for him. Uh, they took him overseas for the first time. It was over in New Zealand, but very sadly, on the final day of a test match that was going nowhere at the Basin Reserve in Wellington, he went down with a, a horror knee injury. He shattered his left kneecap. Those in the crowd said it made the sound of a gunshot. Uh, he was in agony um, being stretched off the ground. His career was in ruins. He, he cracked it again, went on the comeback trail a couple of years later. In the end... It took him until 1997 to resume his professional career. So, I mean, out of professional cricket for five years with that injury and and that comeback only lasted four games and he was done at 29. So a career that started in 1981 and finished in 1997, but really finished in in Wellington uh, back in 1992. He went on to become a professional bodybuilder after that, but yeah, always loved as one of the local lads at Gloucestershire from Bristol, the club for whom he took 625 wickets across that, that stretch of time and yeah, a great appointment last week by all of those who, who know him and know anything about Gloucestershire. They're, they're thrilled to see him uh, in that position, the first black man to hold that role at Gloucestershire yeah, and a great opportunity to, to give even more back to the club and the game from that chair. The last one we'll have before our clock runs out is Michael Edelstein with his $5.28. I said uh, Loretta Bayliss, the left-arm seamer for New Zealand against Australia in 1961 in her only test match. Uh, Well, I talked about some other things as well and Michael said none of the other options were my number but perhaps Loretta Bayliss was in some ways the closest. Another clue is that this is something Adam has never seen. Well, okay. Well, it... It is something that he's seen, Mark, because he has seen white ball hat tricks. But but I take your point, and that did the job to get me where I needed to be. A five for twenty eight. It is a bowling figures analysis, but it's a it's a figures analysis that Dane Van Niekerk took in two thousand and thirteen. Now this is a match against the West Indies. Um, she had already got rid of Deandra Dotton earlier in the innings. Uh, later on, 
she gets Shemaine Campbell out, bowls a dot ball, and then takes three and three. So she takes four in five balls, which doesn't have a name, but it's pretty bloody good. And she dominates in the game to end up with five for 28 in a comfortable win. Now, given we're talking about this now, you will know that Dane Fanukuk has been named one of the Wisden Five Cricketers of the Year one of the ones under the qualifications that Wisdom uh, lay out as to who can be named. So she's the first South African woman to be amongst that crew. Uh, her teammate Lizelle Lee was named the leading women's player in the world as well, which was an interesting pick for the last 12 months. It seems bizarre in a way that Dane Van Eekirk is only 28. I mean, she didn't play in the World Cup due to injury. She's had some injury problems in recent times, but she's been around for so long. She's been playing since 2009. Yeah. Um, and hopefully can come back from those injuries and, and be able to get on with it. But, you know, she's still, she uh, captained the, the winning team in the 100 in its first season and hopefully she's backfiring for South Africa. Yeah, yeah, I think that all that all sounds about right to me. And, uh, yes, uh, it, it is, as we remarked upon the other day, remarkable how she's been such a part of the furniture of South African cricket and yet she's only 28. So, uh, yeah, I expect the best of her will be still to come. I think we've reached the end of our clock now. I'm sorry that we had to rush through some of those. I'm most sorry that we didn't get to spend more time talking about Shane Watson's 185 because any time we spend talking about Shane Watson is time well spent. Uh, biggest Rigus, the Latin name <laughs> of um, the, the, the largest guns this side of Navarone. Um, but we will be back with story time next weekend. We've got a chunk of revisits still to do. We'll see if we can sneak a couple of new numbers in there as well. We'll get everything ship shape uh, ahead of it all to become disastrously all over the place once we get into the English summer. Who knows? Sometimes we're keeping this thing together by an absolute thread, but we could not do it without all of you, the people listening in, the people writing to encourage us, and uh, most essentially the people funding the show. So if you want to be part of that, patron.com slash the final word, then you can send through your number, you can be part of story time, and you can uh, you can help us keep doing what we're doing. Uh, Dave Collins edits the show. It's on the Bad Producer Podcast network and it is created by me jeff lemon and the other one adam collins uh, that's all we have to say for now we'll see you next week have a nice weekend i had to go about it